Hi, and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment, from our rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean. We have it all this season. This week, we speak to Robin Chilland, Project Manager for the Association of Coastal Ecosystem Services, or ACs for short which supports community-led blue carbon projects in East Africa. We dive into her work in marketing and trading blue carbon credits on behalf of the Mikoko Pomoja and Vanga Blue Forest projects. Robin speaks to us about the potential for conservation to deliver benefits, not only for biodiversity, but for the local people and the climate. We also explore the challenges involved in delivering socially just environmental conservation and climate action within community-led projects. In this episode, we talk about mangroves, their role in the ecosystem, the charity ACES, and how it all interconnects to give a community-led sustainable approach to conservation that you may not yet have considered. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please remember to leave us a review. We adore reading them. Get in touch on social media. And if you would like to support us as creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all of the links in the show notes on our website or the description down below. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. Firstly, can you tell us your name, pronouns and the country that you're based in? Yes, my name is Robin Chilland. Um, My pronouns are she, her and hers. And I'm based in Scotland. Fabulous. Well, welcome, Robin. Thank you for introducing yourself. We're really looking forward to chatting with you today. Could you just give us a really quick overview about what it is that you do and introduce your key interest in conservation? So I work for a small charity called ACES. Uh, We're based here in Scotland, but we support community-led mangrove conservation and seagrass conservation in Kenya on the Kenyan coast. Um, I also work for Edinburgh Napier University um, on a couple of projects partly looking at the ethics of carbon offsetting as a solution to the climate crisis, and also looking at how we can uh, learn lessons from um, small community-led blue carbon conservation projects uh, when we're looking at national scale uh, climate action, like nationally determined contributions. I think my key interest in conservation is is linked to to climate change and how we can address uh, the crisis that's facing us. I think um, looking at reports like yesterday's report, the the latest IPCC Mm. report, which was very kind of grim reading, although nothing that we didn't know already, really. Um, I think that I I really enjoy looking at um, nature-based solutions to the climate crisis and looking for those kind of snippets of of optimism and looking at how we can use conservation and and conservation of natural ecosystems uh, to fight the climate crisis and also benefit people along the way. Amazing. We're so just been looking forward to this episode with you, Robin, and to dive into all of those just different things you've mentioned there, nature-based solutions, the charity you work for, and Blue Carbon as well, because it's a phrase I think a lot more people are starting to hear about. Before we do that, we do have a short game, which we like to play with our guests. It's a really fun quickfire round, a couple of questions to keep you on your toes, and just to get us warmed up, ready to chat. So, you okay to play? Yep, go ahead. If you could live in any habitat, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> um, do you know, the easy answer is, is a mangrove forest. Uh, <laughs> but I won't go for the easy answer. I think um, I think I would live on a coral reef. Mm. I think 
they're um, you know such vibrant, exciting places. Um, they're they're so full of life and so full of diversity. Yeah, just so much exciting stuff going on on the coral reef. I think I'd live there. I adore that answer and just the sounds as well of the coral reef. I think are great. Um, so next one, what's something you're grateful for today? I think I'm grateful for the two hours in the middle of the day when the sun came out because it's been raining for so long and we've been seeing so many floods in the last few days. And mm. um, yeah, those, those couple of hours over, over lunchtime when I sat outside and ate my lunch and it was it was warm and sunny. That's what I'm grateful for. I agree with that. And yeah, it has been, we've had some pretty bad flooding, but yeah, it did get very hot today. So I can see why that one's you're grateful. And finally, what would you say is your best professional skill? My best professional skill, I would say, is um, my multitasking and kind of, you know, the, the job that I do is, uh, is just the wrong word for it. No, not multitasking. Um, the job that I do is is so varied and diverse and it can involve you know, a lot of desk-based work, but also going out to speak to communities in Kenya um, and, and all sorts kind of in between. And just, I think, my maybe adaptability is the right word to kind of jump between all those different tasks. Mm. I love that. And I think it's really difficult when somebody talks to you about what you what you do as a role and you try and sum it all up. And everybody talks about these transferable skills. And I really like the idea of adaptability being one that you that sprung to mind immediately because I think we all have to be a little bit adaptable in conservation because things can change so quickly and we have to make decisions on the fly, shall we say. Mm. Um, Right, every episode we also like to ask our guests two other questions. Firstly, what is your favourite sustainable swap? I think making the switch to reusable menstrual products has been the biggest thing for Mm. me. Um, So I use a menstrual cup and I absolutely love it, but for years I was completely freaked out by the idea of, of one. Um, and I think for me, it was just kind of realizing that it's, it's not as scary as, as you might think it is. And even if it doesn't work for you, then there's still uh, reusable sanitary towels. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that's the, been the, the swap that I've been most kind of excited by in my life. I think that is an amazing sustainable swap. And realistically, in actually very short term, it's very economically sustainable as well. So thank you for bringing that one today. And finally... We do ask all of our guests how they get wild about conservation. So, Robin, how do you get wild? <laughs> um, I would say um, in lots of lots of small ways. Um, it's you know it's, it's partly about you know my work in Kenya and these big trips, going out there and and having the projects and all these kind of um, big exciting things going on. But just kind of also smaller things in in my day to day life. And I would say you know taking my dog out for walks and just observing things like land use management and then how we use how we use the land in Scotland and engaging in in issues like that I think especially walking my dog kind of gives me time to think and uh, kind of broaden my horizons a bit beyond my my blue carbon world. I love that answer there's nothing like having a, a companion to get you out of the house and have you watching a little in a different way I think. Mm, and it's contemplating as well that like you just you said so well there Robin about just because you as I do work in the marine world doesn't mean you're not also thinking about what's also going on everywhere else because of how interconnected all these ecosystems are from kind of just a global point of view 
Absolutely. I was up um, in the mountains recently and it was a kind of a very heavily managed grouse moor landscape. And there were these huge banks of, of peat exposed where the land was drained. And you now I was thinking, this is blue carbon and we're up at, you know, a thousand metres. And I'm, and I'm looking at what is effectively, well, it wasn't very blue anymore because all the water had been drained off it. But at one point it was, uh, you know, not your, your traditional blue carbon, but in a way it's the same principle. And if it's washed downstream, who knows, it's eventually become blue carbon again. <laughs> exactly. But, okay, they were the hardest bits, the quick fire round. Now it's all about you, Robin. So what got you into conservation in the first place? So I didn't originally plan on going into conservation. Um, so I left school, actually left school early because I didn't really enjoy it. So I'd kind of scraped through enough hires to to get into a university. Um, and... Then I left, I didn't do my final year and instead went to stay with some family over in the US for a few months. I stayed for, for I think it's three months because it was the maximum you can get on a, on a tourist visa. Um, and then I said, I booked my flight. I thought I'll go and spend three months with my family over there. And then I thought, what will I do when I'm there? Three months is a long time. So I was applying for all kinds of kind of voluntary opportunities. Um, and I came across the New England Aquarium. So I was in Boston at the time. Um, and they offered three month internships. Um, so I applied there and I worked with um, penguins in the aquarium um, and I just absolutely loved it. And I'd always liked animals, which is kind of why I went for the aquarium, but I'd never really thought about it as a career before. Um, I sort of had dreams of being a vet as every little girl does and then didn't get the grades for it. So uh, really loved this internship and just remember you know, even scrubbing rocks and feeding the birds and, and doing all these things and thinking, you know, all my friends are doing you know, advanced higher maths right now and just like loving where I was, you know, thinking this is absolutely the right decision, which was a really great feeling after obviously you kind of get judged a bit maybe for, for leaving school early. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back from there and I thought I want to study zoology. Um, so I started to look at universities um, and chose Edinburgh Ape University, um, which is where I studied animal biology. Um, and through that, got into conservation. One of my lecturers became my, my uh, thesis supervisor, uh, was, had been working with um, this community group in Kenya on the mangroves for, for a few years, or about, I think about 10 years at that point. Um, and... At the end of my time at university, he kind of approached me and another student and said, do you want to get involved in this this charity that I'm setting up to help support mangrove conservation? Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I got into it. That sounds amazing. So you've covered not only what got you into conservation, but quite a bit about your academic. So was there any more academics after Napier or did you then just kind of jump into this project? So I uh, continued working with, with Napier, so I've been doing a few projects with them. I also worked with the University of Aberdeen um, on a short-term project. So one of the first jobs I did after uh, graduating was in um, kind of integrated coastal zone management. And then through that, uh, linked up with the University of Aberdeen, who were looking at uh, kind of a marine spatial planning project, looking at how do you capture all the stakeholders views and values of the coast and all the ecosystems and all the species on the coast and how do you feed that into um into uh, marine spatial plans so i worked on a short-term um project with them just kind of looking at, at how you gather all those views and how you you present them 
Um, but no, most most of it has been continued with with Napier. It's uh, a great bunch of people there, so really enjoyed working with them. I love this journey across Scotland (laughs) of all these different projects. And I can also see, which we're going to get into for our listeners as well later, how you kind of ended up where you are considering the project with Aberdeen and talking to lots of different stakeholders to now working in kind of community projects. I can definitely see the links there. So you did your, um, your thesis, your dissertation at Napier, and then you assisted, I guess, setting up this mangrove charity. So how did that work? How did you... Did, I guess, did you go out to Kenya? And yeah, what happened there? Yeah, so funnily enough, um, so when we did our, our projects in, in our fourth year, um, we were given the opportunity to go to Kenya, um, or we, as, as a course, um, or well, several people on the course, um, there were several places to, to carry out your your thesis um, on in, in Kenya and, and look at the mangroves there. And funnily enough, at the time, I thought, no, that's not for me. So this was before the the charity was set up. Um, And I've never really um, been into field work. I think I'm a bit too lazy for field work. Um, So I I like doing the kind of the analysis of the data that comes out of field work, but I don't don't often put the hard work in myself to actually get in that data. So when this opportunity came up, it was kind of a straight up no for me. I thought, you know, other people can can take that opportunity. but so I've, I've never really, you know, I've got my hands dirty and got into mangrove forests and everything and I enjoy it. But um, it's the, the fieldwork side of things has never been for me. So I turned down that, that first opportunity um, and Mark um, must have still believed in me for some reasons because he still asked me to get involved afterwards. Uh, but it's really that kind of management of the whole process uh, that, I, that I enjoy, the management of the project. Um, Kind of the processes involved in, in community consultations and balancing the needs of you know western funders versus community needs on the ground that's kind of what i get excited about and what i enjoy doing so we set up the, the charity and the projects um together so the projects are, are actually kind of constituted bodies in their own right in kenya um so they're not kind of your typical project structure um but we set up the charity to uh, first of all, support Makoko Pomoja, which is our first project. Um, that means mangroves together in Swahili. Um, and at first we had fairly small aspirations for ourselves. So we never kind of saw ourselves as, as a big charity. We just thought we we're going to do what we can to support Makoko Pomoja. And between the, there was five of us at the time, uh, we had the resources at the time to do that just as volunteers. So ACs ran as a, a volunteer-only organisation for about five years. Um, mm. And then, yeah, so a sister site, uh, Vanga Blue Forest, is based in a, a village called Vanga and a couple of smaller villages called Kuegu and Jimbo, right down on the southern end of the, the, tan- of the Kenyan coast on the Tanzanian border. Um, they approached us and Makokopomoja and said, you know, we've seen the the benefits that Makokopomoja has brought to people and the environment, and we want to do the same, we, we need to start conserving our, our mangrove forest. So at that point, we kind of realised, you know, this isn't sustainable, us running ACs as a charity. Um, so we, we thought we have to kind of start to scale up and, and take on paid staff and, um, and expand a bit more. So in that meantime, when we'd all been volunteers, I'd been doing these other jobs in, in integrated coastal zone management and marine spatial planning types of things. Um, and it was 
you know, like I liked them, but it, I knew it wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. And so I just kind of had this moment where I thought, actually, I'm just going to pour a lot more time into getting ACES off the ground as a, as a kind of paying organization, taking on staff and, and um, allowing us to expand our capacity and, and support these communities. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how ACES evolved. What an origin story. I absolutely <laughs> adore that. Um, it sounds amazing. And the fact you had to do it, had to all be volunteers for five years, like that's so much passion right there. And you've been able to grow it and evolve it in the way that you have. But I am going to pause this chat for a minute and talk about mangroves, because before we get into the charity and community driven projects, I really just want to talk about the topic of interest um, so that everyone has this idea of what you are helping to conserve. So, Robin, can you tell us what is a mangrove? So mangroves are trees, uh, forests that, that grow on the coast. So um, normally salt is the enemy of, of any gardener. Uh, plants don't <laughs> usually like salt, uh, but mangroves are really unique in that respect in that they really thrive in these, these salty saline environments. Um, so they grow along the coast in generally the kind of the intertidal region um, and a little further further inland as well and they're very salt tolerant obviously they have um, various adaptations that allow them to live in these these environments and they um, they're so important for for many reasons uh, first of all with carbon sequestration they absorb huge amounts of carbon uh, from the air but also trap it from elsewhere in the environment as well so they're one of uh, several uh, blue carbon habitats. Um, so blue carbon habitats are um, are coastal habitats which uh, sequester large large volumes of carbon. Um, so they do the mangroves do this uh, partly through their incredible root systems that they have. So if you see pictures of mangrove. Um, Forests, they have these kind of huge, uh, what they're, they're called prop roots. They start from quite high up in the tree and branch out. They're, they're incredible, kind of very unique forests. And those root systems trap huge amounts of carbon in the soils. So whereas most of the time, carbon in, in a terrestrial forest is, is largely stored in the biomass, the, the actual mass of the trees themselves and the roots, um, in mangrove forests, up to kind of 80, 90 percent of the carbon within a mangrove forest can be stored in these these soils and it can go down kind of eight, nine meters in depth in places. Um, so they not only capture all this carbon uh, from the air and from you know other kind of organic matter flowing downstream, um, but they keep it stored for huge amounts of time. And what's special about blue carbon is that um, the, the waterlogged soils prevent any degradation of that carbon. So normally in, in terrestrial soils also store, store carbon uh, to some degree, but they're aerated. There's lots of kind of air pockets within the soils and that allows microorganisms like bacteria to, to flourish and they eat away at that organic matter and release it as carbon dioxide. Uh, but in blue carbon ecosystems, like mangrove forest case, that waterlogged soil prevents all those microorganisms from growing. So that carbon is really just kept locked in there for, for hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, so not only do they store these huge amounts of carbon, um, mangrove forests have other benefits. They um, protect the coast, so they're a natural seawall 
Um, they protect the coast from things like tsunamis. They prevent that kind of huge wave from, from really hitting the, the, um, the land and the communities in land. Uh, they prevent the coast from the, they, they protect the coast from coastal erosion um, and, and other kind of storm surges and storm damage. So um, there's been some really cool studies looking at, at how, um, how much uh, mangrove forests uh, can protect coasts and, uh, and they have a huge kind of economic benefit. And in places like our Vanguard site, uh, where historically there's been some clear cutting of, of mangroves to um, make way for coastal development, sea walls have had to be built in their place and they're just no match or, or yeah, they're no, they're no comparison to, to mangrove forests. Um, so they sequester carbon, they protect uh, the coastline, they are a, a, a kind of huge supporter of biodiversity. So they mm. support all kinds of animals and fish and, and terrestrial animals and, and birds um, and also supports uh, local fisheries. So a lot of these animals use the carbon and they <clears throat> use the, the root systems of mangrove forests as a, as a nursery ground. It's this very kind of protected environment. Um, and then lots of local people rely on those those um, species for sustenance and for income. So they have all these benefits um, and they're yeah just such a, a unique environment. You've painted a beautiful picture of a mangrove there and everything that's going on within a mangrove because they are such special places that are the boundary between land and sea where it can be a little bit extreme to live if you're a crab or a fish (laughs) um just to pick up on something you mentioned earlier when we were first introducing the episode you mentioned the phrase nature-based solution could you give us a definition of that and relate it to why blue carbon is important Mm, absolutely so nature-based solutions are um solutions that harness the natural world to tackle climate change so in tackling climate change we're looking at mitigation which is um, keeping carbon locked in the ground and also absorbing carbon. So it's mitigating the 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 um, the impacts of climate change, uh, getting that carbon dro- uh, drawn down from the atmosphere and, and making sure we're not releasing any more. Um, and also adaptation. So it's adapting to the effects of, of climate change that we're feeling. So the carbon sequestration side really falls into that mitigation category whereas things like the coastal uh, coastal protection um, and and fisheries enhancements uh, comes under the adaptation side so it's kind of mitigating and adapting to the climate change and the climate crisis that we're facing uh, using naturally mm. uh, yeah, conservation of, of natural ecosystems thank you so much for explaining that and for picking up on that question hannah um so Mangroves, where can we find them in the wild? So we've said that they're obviously a barrier between the land and sea. I've never seen one because I've never travelled to a country that does have them, but whereabouts can we find them? So they're found just in tropical and subtropical regions. So they need a constant temperature of, of at least kind of 16 degrees or so to grow, um, although they thrive in uh, kind of much warmer environments. So you get them as as high latitudes as places like New Zealand has some kind of scrub-like mangroves um, and, and North Africa. Um, but really the kind of the, the really typical big uh, mangrove forests that you see are, are really in the tropics. So along our coast of, of East Africa, 
Um, also places like the Caribbean and in Florida has some inc incredible mangrove forests there as well. Um, and especially across Asia um, have some fantastic mangrove forests. Uh, the Sundarbans um, in, in Bangladesh and then into India um, are probably one of the most famous mangrove forests in the world. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, tropical and, and subtropical regions worldwide. Mm. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to snorkel when I've worked overseas um, in mangroves and they, they are very, very beautiful. Um, and just picking up as well on the special addictions. <laughs> Sorry words just picking up as well on the special adaptions that you mentioned earlier because obviously this feeds into all of the blue carbon and carbon storage that you were talking about so there's salt tolerance and is there some other ones as well could you could you walk us through how a mangrove or the trees that are in a mangrove are adapted yeah so they basically have this kind of ultra filtration system for salt so they um expel salt through the leaves if you pick a mangrove leaf you can you can see salt crystals on it and you lick it it tastes very salty <laughs> so any salt that they are taking up they're they're then expelling through the leaves so the plants themselves don't like having salt in them uh, but they, they've adapted to um to kind of get rid of it as quickly as possible um to live in these kind of waterlogged environments, they have things like aerial roots. If you, if you go through a mangrove forest, you often see lots of just small, what look like kind of sticks sticking up out of the ground. Um, and it's these aerial roots that lift out of the water um, to, to be able to, to absorb air out of the water. Um, and the prop roots as well, those huge roots that come out from quite high up the trunk and kind of splay out uh, to create what the, the kind of um, typical of the mangrove look is they, they really st um, stabilize the plant um, in mm. the sea. So obviously the, the with wave action and all sorts coming in, they're, they're quite vulnerable to, to being knocked over as so these prop roots really help keep them up. Um, and also for reproduction, um, if you uh, reproduce like a typical tree and just drop seeds, uh, they would be quite likely to get lost in the water and swept out to sea and, and you wouldn't be very good at reproducing. So what mangroves do is they produce what are called propagules instead of seeds. So propagules are almost like a, a, a very small seedling. They're, they're much more mature than the seed itself. They're generally sort of long stick-like things. And so they drop from the mangrove forest, uh, from, from, sorry, from the tree, and then float in the water and they float vertically until they they hit kind of sediment or mud that they can take root in and they land vertically and then take root from there. So it's a much more um, kind of a reliable way of reproducing than just throwing seeds into the water. I've never thought about how a mangrove would reproduce, but that is such a good point. <laughs> um, can I ask, how many different species of mangroves are there? Because surely like all of our mangrove forests aren't made up of like one species. So there's 54 species of mangroves. Um, they exist in kind of clusters across the tropics um, and also uh, within the, um, the gradient from the right down by the shore and just into the water to further up inland, uh, they vary quite a bit. So you see kind of quite scrub-like mangroves, which most people probably wouldn't actually recognise as a mangrove forest. It, it, it looks like um, any other terrestrial tree down to what you kind of recognize as the, the kind of stereotypical mangroves with their big prop roots right down by the shore. 
Hmm. Wow, that's that's quite a lot of different different ones. And are they are they quick or slow growing? If you were to if you were to plant a mangrove, how long till it becomes a tree? <laughs> I think it's the figure something like twenty four years. I think it is to maturity. Oh, wow. So, uh, being t- um, growing in the tropics, they tend to grow quite a bit faster than than trees would grow here. Hmm. Um, and that's part of the reason why things like the mangrove forest and and the warmer uh, the, the seagrass habitats in warmer climates uh, tend to sequester more carbon than the ones that we have up here. We have some seagrass um, here in Scotland, but it's uh, it's quite scraggly and uh, a bit pathetic compared to things like Mediterranean species of seagrass. Yeah, seagrass is pretty wee in Scotland. However, if you are in Orkney or many other areas and you go snorkeling, it's a stunning place to snorkel. And even though it's a little wee, doesn't mean it's not doing its part for the environment. It's just a little bit of respect for the seagrass out there in Scotland, guys. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Robin, are mangroves at risk, generally? They are. So... Globally, we've lost around about two thirds of our mangrove forests. Um, the figure is quite hard to pinpoint exactly because it hasn't been until very recently that we've actually started measuring these things. Um, mm. But we can look back at historical data and historical images um, and, and kind of take a, a reasonable guess from there. So it's, it's around about two thirds of the mangroves. Um, the main threats, they vary uh, across the world. So particularly in Asia, um, it's they've been cut down to make way for shrimp farms um, on the coast. Um, but globally, it's it's coastal development in general is is a big threat to it, uh, to, to mangrove forests. Um, they're, they're cut down to make way for things like marinas, uh, coastal hotels, um, just any development. You know, obviously, most of our, our global development is on our coastlines. So our coastal ecosystems have really suffered as a result. Um, and you would think that maybe with the recognition of mangrove forests, uh, things like that are, are stopping now. But unfortunately, it's, it's still happening across the world, although hopefully to, to a lesser degree. Um, so, yeah, sh- uh, shrimp farming, coastal development, uh, pollution, um, largely from upstream rather than kind of marine pollution itself, although it doesn't play a part. Um, things like um, uh, fertilizers. On, on agricultural land flow downstream and cause algal blooms um, in the marine environment, which can swamp um, various marine ecosystems, um, including mangroves. Um, sedimentation is an issue for the same reason. If, if land is disturbed from developments upstream, the sediments flow downstream and, and can kind of suffocate mangrove forests, especially the, the younger, um, the, the propagules and the seedlings as they grow. Um, so pollution is also an issue. Um, and uh, in our case, in, in Kenya, or at least on our project sites in Kenya, the biggest threat is just kind of small scale cutting for sustenance, uh, which has obviously happened ever since humans have been been living on the coast. It's, it's nothing new, but with huge kind of population increases and, and more and more people moving to these areas and living on the coast, um, it's, it's becoming unsustainable. And the small scale cutting leads to around about loss of, of, of about 2% of mangroves a year in Kenya, which might sound small, but, you know, every single year losing 2%, it adds up to, to quite a lot. Um, so that's a, a, 
you know, quite a difficult challenge to address um, because, you know, these the people who are cutting the mangroves are doing so to support their own livelihoods and, and to survive in many cases is to heat their houses with fires and to cook their food and, and to, to build their houses. So it's not such an easy uh, solution as saying, you know, just don't cut it. Um, so, yeah, the risks are, are varied um, and, and quite diverse. Mm. And I think it's worth summarising there as well, as you've mentioned all of the, the benefits of a mangrove, that you could take a very kind of pointed look and say you're losing the mangrove forest, but what you're actually losing is the biodiversity it supports. You're losing the fisheries that it supports. The carbon, I guess, is being released back out into the atmosphere by this deforestation, and you're losing that coastal protection as well, which with climate change, as you've already mentioned, that natural coastal protection, storms are only getting bigger. So it's really valuable to coastal communities that there is these ecosystems that are protecting the land. So and just kind of wanted to summarise that point for our listeners that we're not just talking about the loss of the trees, we're talking about the loss of everything that's linked to it as well. Absolutely. And it can um, be so hard to recover that once you've lost it. So a lot of... Um, People often focus on planting trees and people come to us and say, can you plant a million mangroves if we give you this money? And, you know, planting trees has its place and, and planting mangroves has its place. But it's really about protecting what we have, because once you've lost that mangrove forest, it takes so long to recover the carbon, especially. And takes a long time to recover a mature forest again to the point where it's supporting species, to the point where it's protecting the coast. Um, so we really need to kind of protect what's there. Um, there was a really important um, academic paper was published, I think, in 2019 by an author called uh, Ali Goldstein and, and colleagues. Um, and they looked at several um, ecosystems across the world, including mangroves, uh, which they said contain irrecoverable carbon. And what they meant by that was that if we lose all the carbon um, from these ecosystems into the atmosphere, uh, we would basically trigger uh, such catastrophic effects on the climate um, that we couldn't recover them, that, that we couldn't recover that carbon in time to avoid kind of catastrophic climate breakdown. I just think when you put it in such easy to understand terms, it is quite worrying and it completely makes sense to me when you say, no, the money and the time and the effort should be going into protecting what we have because it is great creating new habitats in places where there used to be, but the the primary idea should be on protecting what we do have. Um, so now that we're kind of, we know what a mangrove is, we know where they are, we know what they kind of look like, I would love to talk a little bit more about the charity, ACES. So firstly, I can't remember if we mentioned this, but can you just tell me what that stands for? It stands for the Association for Coastal Ecosystem Services. Um, so it's it's a bit of a mouthful, so we shorten it to ACES. I think that absolutely makes sense. Everybody's got a an abbreviation when they, <laughs> after they realise their name's too long, because we do yeah. it with the podcast as well. So that's completely reasonable <laughs> to me. Um, and you've already kind of covered what the staff and volunteer structure is and that it's covered both in the UK and in Kenya. But I was really interested, how do you guys generate income? Is it through grants and bids or? So most of our income is generated from selling carbon credits. 
um, so carbon credits or carbon offsetting is when people pay um, for activities to take place uh, to offset the carbon that they are producing as a result of their lifestyle. Um, so the most kind of typical or widely used example is taking a flight. Uh, so you can use various calculators online that tell you how much your space on that flight uh, costs in terms of carbon. Um, usually it's, it's uh, instead of the single figures um, of, of tons, it's measured in tons of carbon dioxide. Um, so you get that number um, and then you can pay a certain amount um, to projects which can be things like ours of, of restoring and, and protecting forests um, or things like renewable energy. Um, you can pay for activities that will absorb that amount of carbon uh, from the atmosphere again. So in our case, it's mostly generated through avoided deforestation. Um, so we do a small amount of planting. But the biggest part is, is calculating um, how much carbon is being lost in what's called the baseline scenario, the kind of business as usual scenario, looking at how much carbon we can save by implementing these project interventions. And that difference between those two is our carbon benefits. And we can then sell that carbon as carbon credits. Um, so um, to give you an idea of scale, Makoka Pomoja is around about 117 hectares in size, and it produces a little over 2,000 carbon credits a year. Um, and so we sell those and, and the money funds the conservation, but also other activities like community development projects to support the community who are protecting the mangrove forest. And you already just mentioned there, Robin, about what the money funds but who is it that actually decides where this money goes? Is it the staff in the UK? Is it the staff overseas? Is it everyone? Mm. So, um, so as ACs, we we take the money for from the carbon credits and we send as much as we possibly can back to the projects themselves. Uh, so that's been really easy. Uh, when we've been uh, been volunteer led, we've we often in some years sent ninety five percent back to the communities after covering our own, our own overheads. Wow. Um, and so we've we've kind of kept our, our costs low in that way. And going forwards, we'll try to cover our own costs through external grants so we can still send as much of that money back to the community as we can. Um, and we think that's really important. So once the money is with the community, there is a, a rough kind of benefit sharing structure, uh, which outlines kind of the set costs for conservation activities, um, set costs for things like monitoring and, and all those kind of fixed costs associated with kind of achieving the, the conservation goals. And then beyond that, a lot of the money is put into a, a community development fund, uh, which is um, kind of democratically spent by the community as a whole. So as I mentioned earlier on, um, the projects aren't our projects as such. They are constituted bodies in Kenya. They're, they're community-based organisations. And under that structure, they have an elected committee who are elected by the whole community. Um, so they oversee the, the projects and it's, it's spending. But when it comes to actually deciding on projects uh, to spend money on, um, we hold or the projects hold what are called barazas in Kenya, their community meetings, which mm. um, a huge number of people engage in. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to see because it's not something that we have so much here in the UK. If you hold a community meeting, you'll maybe get 
a few of the, the elderly members of the community turning up and there's not that much engagement um, as a whole but but where we work everybody gets engaged in this and and so you, and they all have a vote on how the money is spent so you can really kind of have confidence that that the money is being spent in the community's interests and avoiding kind of a few um kind of elites within the community uh, directing the money as as they see fit that sounds like an amazing way to decide kind of what happens to this these funds that you're raising can i ask how what has been the most amazing part of working on a community-based structure like this and the most challenging part because i imagine it has its own challenges Mm, absolutely um i would say the best part um I think the, the 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 fact that Vanga the Vanga community saw the benefits that the Mojo were, were getting mm-hmm. uh, from the project and they you know actively said we want to do the same thing. Um, so rather than being that kind of directive top down approach to conservation, you know people sometimes ask us how do you what's your site selection process? You know, what factors do you take into account? And and really the biggest factor. Um, is is community willingness and if it's the community that initiate that um then then that's that's kind of the the ideal scenario and everything else comes after you know it obviously has to be a viable project site but but the foundation is is really that community support um and i think possibly the the, the most challenging part is is almost the same thing it's is that uh community support for the project um it's you know it's I, I maybe make it sound a bit dreamy there saying that they were super engaged and want to, to start their own projects. Um, but when you get down to the kind of the nitty gritty of it and sorting out details and, and which project sites are you going to include and, and what the interventions will be and what um, kind of compromises people will, will have to make, um, it's, it can definitely be challenging and, and a long process. Um, but I think it's so important that you take the time to, to go through that process and don't rush it. Um, I think for too long we've had that kind of top-down command and control approach to conservation, uh, whereby often Western organisations go in and, and implement their own conservation projects, often at the expense of local people. Um, so I think it's just really important to work in a way that um, not only consults with local people, but actually makes them a stakeholder. And um, basically the, the projects have to hinge on community support. I would say that's the biggest risk to the projects is, is um, the community pulling their support. Um, and luckily that hasn't been a, a threat so far. Um, and I think it's important that the projects do take that risk because they have to be so reliant um, on community support. Um, but yes, it's a, it can be a long process and a frustrating process and you can go around in circles. Um, but um, to us, the, the process is just as, if not more important than the outcomes themselves. I think that's amazing. As soon as you said that, you know, the Vanga Blue community approached you and said, we want to be involved. And what you just said there is so poignant about the success of conservation by including everyone that it impacts rather than trying to just press I don't want to say an agenda because that's not the right word but going in and saying this is how we're going to do it in any community it doesn't need to be a community overseas we you can see it in communities just within say for example the UK people have ownership of the nature around them as they should so like yeah I think that's such a great thing to to really highlight of the importance of working with the people that whose lives are affected by 
the nature in general that they live in um so I think that's super super exciting that they kind of mm. approached you and said let's do this um so the next question that I wanted to ask was a little bit about verification and so with I guess any research project but as well for conservation verifying impact and as you've mentioned kind of sustainability for the future is really important so I guess in terms of the carbon crediting as well how do ACs do this so we are accredited to the Plan Vivo standard. Um, so the Plan Vivo Foundation are, again, a, a fairly small charity uh, based in Edinburgh, actually. So it's uh, been based in Scotland ourselves. It's nice to to have a local partner like that. Um, um, what they do is they they set out the, the Plan Vivo standard, which is a set of, of um, kind of rules and, and guidelines and, and methodologies um, that you have to to follow and abide by and, and show that you meet the standards in order to gain um, accreditation. Um, so again it's, it's it's a long process. It's uh, um, you yeah you have to go through all sorts of um, kind of aspects of the project um, including the scientific side, especially obviously that actually accounting for the carbon. Um, you have to do your own measurements of of the carbon benefit and your own carbon accounting then that's independently um kind of audited by their their scientific advisory committee and um and so that's kind of a, a very tech uh, very kind of um yeah quite an arduous process and mm. there's you have to kind of show how you'll um uh, how you'll engage with the community how you'll involve the community how there'll be stakeholders um, and and all aspects of that to, to to kind of create your project design. So you first of all go through that process, and then that has to be independently audited by a third party, um, a, a validation visit. So you have to contract uh, somebody who's who's um, accredited to basically audit your project. Essentially, go through the PDD and, and make sure that what you said in the PDD, the project design document, is as it is on the ground. Um, and then you, you get certification, um, but then that's not the end of it. You have to go through annual reporting and the release of annual credits or kind of um, ability to sell carbon credits every year is is dependent on successful reporting to Plan Vivo. Um, so again, we report against all of these monitoring indicators about social benefits, um, environmental benefits beyond carbon and of course the carbon itself. Um, to say how much of the project, how much of the forest we've protected, how much we've planted, um, and that's how we can sell credits every year. And then every five years, we have a an independent verification visit, which is kind of like the validation visit, but uh, kind of regular every five years. So carbon offsetting uh, and again gaining accreditation is it's a really complicated process, um, and it's funny because it's it's quite a controversial subject mm. um and it, it has critics on all sides um and one of the criticisms is it's it's too easy to 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 get accredited and and we're claiming carbon that we're not actually sequestering but having gone through the process um i would strongly refute that and it's it's a really kind of onerous process to go through um which is a good thing it, sh it should be that way and we should be kind of held to account for what we're claiming carbon wise um and but it means that it's not 
the ideal solution for everyone and especially community groups uh, because it involves so much um, kind of technical knowledge, scientific knowledge, technical abilities and, and equipment, access to laboratories for carbon analysis and, and all these kind of aspects that feed into this project design. Um, but in situations like ours and in several other projects um, across the world which have made it work, then it's um, it's a great source of income because it's, it's sustainable. You have this kind of almost guaranteed level of income every year without having to, to hunt grants all the time. Yeah, I think as a terms in the terms of you guys having an income, it just makes complete sense to me. Although I'm not going to lie, the accounting side of carbon credits still confuses me to no end. But just for a final <laughs> bit of clarification on this topic, do you guys almost do the accountancy side of it for Mikko Kopajoma and Vanga Blue Forest so you're sorting out those credits and then they just run the projects because they're the projects in their own rights yeah absolutely um so like you the accounting side gives me a headache so <laughs> that's my my colleagues who do that um so we were quite lucky in that um you know I say that a few projects have made it work we've made it work through our kind of partnership structure um so if we as ACs and the projects themselves were left to do this, it would be a huge task for us. Um, mm -hmm. But as I said earlier in the, the podcast, we're, we're linked with Edinburgh Napier University. Mark, who's the ACs chair and, and the founder of ACs, um, had worked partly on, on carbon um, accounting in Mokokopomoja for years beforehand. So we kind of had those scientific skills almost through third party uh, partners. And on site as well, we have a local partner called Kenya Marine and Fisheries Research Institute, which is a national research institution in Kenya. Um, and they have a local research base in Gazi, where Makoka Pomoja is. Um, and, and so they can then do a lot of the work on the ground themselves. Um, so it's, it's a partnership. Um, it's definitely reliant on scientific support in some way. Um, we talk about these community-led projects um, and community-based projects, but... That doesn't mean that you know it's it's left to the community entirely. It's it's definitely a success of of a network um, of of partner organisations um, across the world, uh, but which hinges on um, community support and community governance. So, Robin, you've mentioned that mostly your work is about protecting what's there because of how important it is for these mature mangrove forests to be protected. But there is a little bit of the restoration and replanting side to the projects as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you actually restore a mangrove forest? Yeah, so in Mokokopomoja, it's, it's a very small area of, of planting that we have. It's a site on the beach that was once mangrove forest, but was then clear cut. Um, and we've, we've been restoring a little there. Uh, we plant around about 2000 seedlings a year, give or take. Um, so it's, it's pretty small scale restoration um and it's although it's small it's, it's still an important part of the project i would say mostly because it's such a great way of engaging the local community um so um people of all ages and, and from all walks of life get involved uh the kids love to come down and, and plant the, the the mangrove trees what we do uh, in our case um is that we take the young seedlings from areas that they will kind of root and just about seed, but they have no survival success. Um, so we take these small seedlings that are growing in these, these low survival areas and plant them. 
uh, within our, our planting area. So it's a bit more relocation, uh, but it's relocation mm. with a kind of survival aspect to it. Um, and yeah, so, so people love to get involved and it's it's a great kind of tangible way of, of getting the community involved and getting people taking part and understanding what's going on and, and why they're doing it. It's a great kind of educational opportunity. Um, it stayed a small part of our project in Mokokopamoja um, because the planting of mangrove forests is, is very difficult. Um, I think globally, um, an analysis of, of all planting efforts showed that something like 80% of them actually died and didn't get to wow. maturity. Um, and so our kind of challenges aren't, aren't um, kind of unique uh, in the, the, the mangrove planting world. But things like you, have, you basically have a very small window within a year that you can plant a mangrove forest or plant mangrove trees. Um, and if, if you miss that window or if then kind of sedimentation that I discussed earlier kind of affects the, the seedlings or if waves kind of a freak storm comes in and washes them away, you've basically lost your, your year's planting efforts. Um, so we've had kind of limited success in Mokokopamoja, but as I say, it's it's still important. Um, in Vangably Forest, it's we're taking quite a different approach, um, and so we're looking at more of an ecological restoration approach, which is where you um, create the the favourable conditions in the environment for mangroves to grow, mm. rather than just kind of sticking them sticking them in the ground. Um, so in Vanga's case. Our planting areas are, are disused salt pans, so they're areas that were blocked off from um, from kind of uh, tidal uh, inputs um, to, to become kind of hypersaline environments and to harvest salt. Um, and that was kind of clear cut a long time ago for these salt pans, but they failed as a business. It just didn't work out um, in the area, and so they've kind of remained. Uh, degraded and they haven't managed to recover because the the, the environment uh, that they now that the land is now in is so kind of hypersaline it's it's too salty even for mangroves um so what we're looking at doing is is to do some kind of uh, environmental restoration um to to create uh channels that the water can come in and out make sure there's fresh water input for the seedlings as well because fresh water is is important for them um, and to create the, the environment for mangroves to grow. And then we'll do some planting, but also hope that in doing this kind of ecological restoration, uh, we'll actually just encourage natural regrowth of the forest. I think that's an amazing way to look at it, especially when you've mentioned the numbers of the lack of success of a mangrove forest in reality, that it can be quite difficult to grow these um, seedlings into trees um over time and it is a little bit difficult that looking at it with a wider scale at vanga blue would be very beneficial but i did want to bring it back and talk a little bit more about your work that's based with local communities so you've already mentioned some of the highs and the similar things in terms of the lows of working in conjunction with communities but would you be able to explain the projects in the context of working with them in order to empower them to work in the best interest in their environment? So did you find that working with these communities and going to these um, meetings, people are already wanting to do what's best for their environment within their means? Or was that something that was discussed and has changed over time? Yeah, it's. I'd say there's been a huge range within the communities. Uh, there's been people who have been uh, kind of the super eco warriors and and pushing for this change, 
uh, people who, um, you know, haven't been aware of, of the, the, imp the, the benefits of mangrove forests and why it's so important to conserve them. And of course, the people who are just simply dependent on them for their livelihoods. And if they agree to, to, to these interventions, these project interventions to conserve, um, their, their primary concern, understandably, is, is how they're going to get firewood to, to feed their family and, and cook on and, and build uh, their, their houses with. So mm. it's been kind of a lot of challenges in, in that way. Um, um, so one challenge that we faced um, early on was just identifying who in the community will be the most affected by the interventions. So in Kenya, um, it's actually illegal full stop to cut any mangrove forest with the exception of, of, sort of small um, licensed cutting. But as a blanket rule, it's, it's legal to cut any mangroves, which is a very ambitious policy and, and a completely ineffective one in practicality, uh, because as I say, people need this, this timber uh, for their livelihoods and their income. Um, and also the, the Kenyan government doesn't have the resources to, to police uh, this, this policy that they have. Um, so that means that when you're trying to find out who in the community is reliant on cutting and so who you need to target to make sure that, um, that the benefits of the project um, are targeted towards them, that's a really kind of challenging um, thing to find out because nobody's going to readily admit to, to cutting trees. Mm. Um, so it's all about kind of the, uh, as I said earlier, the process that you're going through with the community um, the the subtleties in in these discussions you're not you know actively going out and saying okay who cuts and you know direct your your intervention your benefits towards them um, it's all about kind of getting the community as a whole um, on board and ultimately kind of sort of reach that a bit of a critical mass within the community when um, it's it's mostly social pressure uh, from those who support the project um, on on people cutting. Um, that's that is the real kind of um, essentially the policing of the project. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's that kind of getting enough people on board that um, the community, the, the project essentially has a social license to operate. And that's something, fortunately, that we saw in, in Vanga before the project had even been suggested, um, was that the community were kind of actively going out and chasing um, illegal cutters away. You know they were so active about about conserving uh, about conservation um, that that was kind of the, the the definite sort of step up in in um, in starting the project and getting that community support. I find it really fascinating how successful these projects have been because they are, as you've said, very very much community led. And just thinking on kind of a wider scale for other projects that might think about doing the same things, do you as ACs have policies in place or are there policies and processes that are needed to make sure this kind of work is effective and that you know community interest comes first and things are directed by the community for the community rather than as you've mentioned earlier people just coming in and saying okay this is what we're going to do yeah absolutely um so the community governance aspect of the project is so important um so that's kind of really what anchors it in that in that kind of um ownership of the project mm. in the community um, is that the local people are elected and anybody can be elected to govern. Um, so we have that community governance within that. Um, there's kind of policies that things like at least one third of that, um, that elected committee have to be female. 
Um, wow. So making sure that there's gender representation. Um, and yeah, so policies like that in your founding documents and in the project design document that we have under under Plan Vivo, the similar policies to ensure mm. social inclusion and, and inclusion of, of marginalized groups. Um, but I would say it's, it's kind of one thing to have these policies and another to kind of actively proactively make sure that yeah. they're being implemented and they're being they're, they're, they're effective um so that's kind of one thing that we're working on at the moment um is is kind of taking a critical look at ourselves and saying you know we we tick these boxes and we we you know we um we have all these policies in place and and a third of the committee are, are female and um but is there anything that we can do better um to to make sure that these policies are working so kind of taking the example of of gender representation on the committee, um, one thing that we looked at was um, kind of participation in committee meetings. So you can have a third of the committee being female, but if men are dominating the conversation, then is that third or, or you know at least a third um, really um you know, effective and, and are women really being represented? Mm. Um and it's you know it's in such an interesting thing to look at because there's so many subtleties along the way um so we looked at um you know in in Vangably forest we're looking at this this kind of engagement and we thought actually no you know women aren't participating very much but then somebody observed actually it might be you know the men that do all the talking but then women are the ones who who actually kind of get their heads down and, and make the the decisions at the end of the day so it's all those kind of things, you know, it's it's not quite as simple as um, as you might sort of think to start with, looking at at, the, at um, how effective uh, those policies are, and a lot of it is is obviously so deeply embedded in culture that um, mm. you know I'm kind of a, a passive observer, and a lot of it is my Kenyan colleagues who kind of really get stuck into it. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's a kind of a, a fascinating subject, and you know we talked about elite capture um of of resources within a project uh we need to we have kind of safeguarding processes in place to make sure that a few um elite individuals whether they are kind of wealthy or powerful or just confident outgoing characters aren't kind of dominating those conversations and and um kind of uh funneling the resources to to where they see fit I think it's so interesting and like you've said it kind of has to be done on a project by project basis because each project will come with its own suite of nuances because you are dealing with a community. I think it, it's absolute magic what you're talking about because it is everybody working together to have one goal but yes as much as the word agenda has negative connotations everybody does have their own agenda and everybody wants something slightly different out of it and being able to see that you've supported such an amazing project that a second one's come on board that's so positive that's such a positive story that's such a positive active communication thing that we're talking about here but in terms of I know it's really difficult to speak broadly but in terms of like scaling up above the community level do you see any challenges in that so say a, a project wanted to grow or you yourselves wanted to do a little bit more active and a little bit um or increase your projects that you do work on do you foresee any project any problems with that 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've always been really small scale and and with very defined communities, which I think has been really important. So mm. there's two villages within the Mohokapamoja area and three within the Vanga area. Um, and there's kind of no, there's no blurred lines about who is within the project area. Um, but we've had other community groups contact us um, in areas that just for, for geographical reasons really would be so challenging. Um, so we had one example over in Sierra Leone, um, which mm. was a, a kind of quite a fragmented coast and a lot of small islands. And the the social structure was was completely different to how we have in, in Kenya. It was um, kind of a um, much more fragmented with many um, kind of traditional leaders as opposed to kind of our village leaders that we have in Kenya. Um, and so when you're looking at uh, certainly like things like a benefit sharing structure, when you have a community like that, you think, how do you um, how do you benefit that community when everybody's fragmented? Everyone lives on small islands or small isolated areas of the coast. Um, how do you bring that group together for a start and, and negotiate terms when they have this kind of shared mangrove forest, but completely different um, kind of geographical spread? Um, so yeah, kind of identifying the community. Um, on the opposite end of the scale, we had another group in Tanzania who wanted to conserve a forest that was being really badly degraded, but it was in Dar es Salaam, a, a, a city, and there's just such a, a dense urban population. And again, you're looking at, you know, it's it's not the same in that it's 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 a very um, kind of you can identify there's a, a continuous population around the mangrove forest, but then it's continuous all the way into the center of the city center of Dar es Salaam. And you think, where does that community end? You know, you're looking at people within X radius of the mangrove forest, but in such a busy area, you might have um, kind of cutters coming in from all areas of the city and beyond. Um, so really kind of identifying the community in, in cases like that is hard to set up a, a community-based project. Um, and then there's just kind of logistical resource, uh, logistical challenges um, of, of monitoring much larger areas of, of mangroves. The areas that we look at are quite manageable, but even then, as I said earlier, they need that kind of support of, of, um, of scientific partners who might have um, things like boats to access uh, more inaccessible areas. So the kind of logistical challenges are definitely there. Um, and then when you're looking at scaling up to national level conservation, this is something that we've been looking at recently mm. um, and kind of specifically looking at um, the nationally determined contrib contributions or the NDCs, which are national commitments made under the Paris Agreement uh, by nations, which are basically their plan to say how they're going to, to uh, contribute to the meeting of the, the Paris goal to limit global temperature rise to kind of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius um, to achieve those those commitments. And, and they're becoming kind of increasingly ambitious. More countries are starting to include blue carbon in their NDCs. Um, and again, kind of going back to what I mentioned about kind of Kenya's national policy, if you can't cut mangrove forests, um, it's, you know, if, if you have kind of blanket policies like that, that don't take into account local needs um, and what communities want, then they're just going to kind of be either be ineffective and unsustainable um, and kind of socially unjust. Um, but uh, yeah, kind of risk 
overriding that that community aspect to projects like ours it's so fascinating of kind of just yeah the challenges that you said there I'd not even thought about some of those of where you've been approached by different groups and trying to actually identify what a community is and also highlighting that pressures can come from out with the community so obviously earlier you talked about how you've got the communities governing already before they became part of these projects to um stop people cutting down parts of mangroves but yeah when you've got people coming from further and further afield to come and take what is in a sense something that may be a really strong part of a community it's just how how do you draw those boundaries and how do you monitor that and it brings in so many questions and yeah thank you for talking a bit more about that and especially the um, nationally determined contributions because I do see it more and more of people looking, as you said earlier, to nature-based solutions, which hopefully moves us in the right direction of also thinking how we can bolster nature a little bit. But honestly, Robin, this has been so fascinating. I could just listen to you talk (laughs) all day. Um, But we do have to come towards the end of the podcast at some point. Um, But I just wanted to ask if you could summarize some of the key successes of AC so far, because we've spoken about so, so much. So yeah, if you just had to say what are the key successes so far, what would that be? Mm. I think at a local level, um, it's really been that kind of community fund that I spoke about earlier um, mm. has really brought um, directed, uh, locally directed um, benefits to the local community. So it's funded things like the construction of two wells, one in each of the villages and the kind of network of water points, which has just reduced the distance that people need to walk for their water. Um, and in, improve the cleanliness of the water that they're accessing. Um, so interventions like that, you know, although they're, they're quite different to the, the conservation side of things, it's about alleviating poverty, which is really driving people to, to cut the mangroves. So it's the, the work that we're doing uh, to kind of address these issues at their source rather than just kind of put a sticking plaster on it. Um, so I'd say that's at the local level. I would say, although our projects are small scale, um, kind of very small scale compared to some projects, um, they've been, um, you know, we, we we sort of call them boutique projects. And it's <laughs> in a way a, a bit of a criticism because they're, they're so small that we, like their, their impact on climate change is absolutely minuscule. But their influence um, elsewhere is, mm. is kind of their real power. So they've kind of inspired the the development of other blue carbon projects elsewhere um, and they've also informed things like Kenya's national mangrove management strategy um, and we recently influenced Kenya's 2020 submission of their NDCs as well so it's that kind of it's a it's a bit of a, a, a microcosm to learn all these lessons and learn best practice and then get those out there and, and integrated into policies and, and legislation and, and into other projects around the world, I think has been a huge, huge success. I'm absolutely cheesing. I'm smiling at all of these successes <laughs> that you mentioned. It's so impressive, the amount of work you guys have put in and what's actually come out of it. It's just amazing to be able to hear it and talk to you about it all. So just as we start to really wrap up now, are there any ways that our listeners can get involved, either with ACES or anything they can do to protect mangroves generally obviously there's the whole carbon credit situation which people can figure out because it's confusing and mind-boggling um but Robin 
Yeah, so you can buy carbon credits from us. Uh, so you can visit our website and and uh, get in touch. And we also just love to hear from people who are, who are buying from us. So um, if you're doing that, then yeah, pop us an email and introduce yourself. And and um, yeah, we love to to know who's who's getting involved. Um, you can donate as well if um, carbon credits carbon credits isn't your thing or if you have such a super low carbon footprint that you don't need to offset which is even better <laughs> um you can also donate donate to us so um donations are basically just a an added benefit on top of the carbon credits the money um still 100 goes to to the community from donations um so um yeah donate to us or there's plenty of other uh mangrove charities around the world as well doing some some incredible work um and also just to to learn about mangroves, to, to tell other people about mangroves and why they're important. Um, I think there's um, there's increasing awareness of, of mangroves and other blue carbon habitats that are, and their importance, uh, but it could it could always be higher. And uh, I think just yeah, kind of spreading the world the word about how important mangrove forests are is just as important as anything else. Oh, Robin, that's just, I think you've just hit the point of a beautiful way to end this podcast of, (laughs) yeah, the message to spread what you learn and that will help other people learn too and hopefully ignite passions, which will then become conservation or at least actions in some shape or form. So just before we say bye, is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. I think, uh, yeah, no, that's been great. And thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Ah, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, thank you to our listeners for listening as always. And with that, we'll say have a wild day, guys. So bye. bye. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been wild about conservation and you have been awesome. Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. And we read each and every one. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we're also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, that's 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we just donate it to charity. Thank you to those of you who are already helping us to keep creating. Our charity for this season is Seafall. This is a UK-based charity helping more people to reconnect to the ocean and waterways for the benefit of their mental health and to nurture stewardship of our blue spaces. The word seafall is derived from being mindful of the sea, mindful of its importance, of the way it feels to be there, and of what we can do to help preserve and protect it. We chose this charity as we strongly support their mission and goals. Check out the support section on our website to find out more. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, let us know. And don't forget, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.